This decision, which is legally sound, has the effect of declaring all private mortgages on real and personal property and all U.S. and state bonds held by the Federal Reserve, national and state banks to be null and void. This amounts to the emancipation of this nation from personal, national, and state debt purportedly owed to this banking system. Every American owes it to himself to study this decision very carefully, for upon it hangs the question of freedom or slavery. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. I hope you all are having a wonderful, happy, happy new year. And I am stoked about 2024. And we are kicking it off today with a read. This one from Daniel Prince, who is a, uh, a friend that I haven't actually hung out with or talked to in a while. But he is a great guy and he's got some really fantastic writing and he pulls together a piece today on usury. And what's funny is I've never, it's, it's funny, I've never really been totally against the idea of quote unquote renting out money, the idea of loaning with an interest rate. But there's actually a really, really strong case to be made that it shouldn't exist. And I'm increasingly open to the idea the thing that has always gotten me is or the thing that i think is deeply deeply insidious and disgusting and is incredibly prevalent is the cre i mean it's the basis of our monetary system is the creation of new money into existence loaning that out and charging interest on it. And in the guy's take after this piece, he basically hits both, both of these, but in the guy's take after this piece, uh, I want to kind of expand on both of those ideas and kind of give the argument for both. But uh, real quick, let's go ahead and thank our sponsors. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best place to buy, to automatically stack, to set up, uh, you can now do a multi-sig vault. You can set up your Bitcoin IRA where you can get your traditional or Roth into, get your retirement into Bitcoin. You can smash by up to like $10 million worth and you can learn just about everything there is to know about Bitcoin right at swan.com slash guy with my special link. You should definitely go to that one. I have a good collection up there actually for their Bitcoin rabbit hole. But one of the things you also learn is all the great ways to hold your own keys, which is why you need a cold card. Getting a Bitcoin, a solid, reliable, and trusted Bitcoin hardware wallet like the cold card is one of the best possible things that you can do for yourself and your future security and comfort in the Bitcoin space. CoinKite is one of the longest running, maybe the longest running, and most trusted brand of uh, hardware, Bitcoin hardware builders in this space. They make incredible products and they have tons of stuff to choose from. And you can get a discount with my code, Bitcoin Audible. That link, those details, and all that good stuff will be right in the description of this show. With that, let's go ahead and jump into today's read. And it's titled Usury, Your Bank, and You by Daniel Prince. Discovering usury via historical meanderings through the times of Aristotle, religious beliefs, a life-saving Russian NKVD interrogation, and a dead United States Justice of the Peace. Usury. Noun. The practice of lending money and charging the borrower interest, especially at an exorbitant or illegally high rate. Derived from the Latin word usura, the practice of usury has been discussed among philosophers, economists, and religions for thousands of years. Aristotle discussed usura in his book Politic in the year 350 BC, where he outlined the three ways to make money. Knowledge of Livestock 
which are most profitable, and where and how. As for example, what sort of horses or sheep or oxen or any other animals are most likely to give a return? A man ought to know which of these pay better than others, and which pay best in particular places, for some do better in one place and some in another. Service for hire. Being employed in the mechanical arts, the other in unskilled and bodily labor. Usury. The most hated sort, and with the greatest reason, is usury, which makes a gain out of money itself and not from the natural object of it. Money was intended to be used in exchange, but not to earn interest. And this term interest, which means the birth of money from money, is applied to the breeding of money because the offspring resembles the parent. Therefore, of all the modes of getting wealth, this is the most unnatural. No holding back there from Aristotle. Throughout the centuries, we can find many more documented thoughts and beliefs about the practice of usury in society. In the religious texts of Christian and Islamic beliefs, usury translates to riba in Arabic, we find many mentions of the negative stance towards this practice. Exodus chapter 22 verse 25 If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 19 You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. In Islam, riba is explained as an exploitative means of increasing one's wealth. This is because a person with surplus money lends it to someone in desperate need of it. Islamic scholars have always been in unanimous agreement on the matter of interest. Whether it's interest received in a bank account or a loan for buying property or for education, as long as it includes interest, it's forbidden. Riba is haram, or forbidden, for the one who receives it and the one who pays it. It is also haram to facilitate riba in any way whatsoever. Surah al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 278. O you who have believed, fear Allah and give up what remains due to you of interest, if you should be believers. Buddhism also takes a dim view of the practice of usury. One discerns wrong livelihood as wrong livelihood, and right livelihood as right livelihood. And what is wrong livelihood? Scheming, persuading, hinting, belittling, and charging interest. This is wrong livelihood. Siddhartha Gautama Buddha So how do we now live in a world where usury is used in society every second of every day? How have we fallen so far from the philosophical and political beliefs of Aristotle and the shared religious beliefs from around the world? For the last ten years, I have read many books on the history of money and explored the financial and banking system, but no book has left me more astounded than Red Symphony, which isn't a book in the strictest sense, but a transcript. That needs highlighting again. It is a transcript. A transcript of a conversation that took place on the 26th of January, 1938, between Gavril Kusman and Christian Rakowski. Kussman was Stalin's NVKD agent and key interrogator. Rakowski had been the Russian ambassador to France and was to be executed the next day unless he could disclose information to his interrogator that would be of use to Stalin. During their conversation, Rakowski began to expose the international financiers who had successfully captured the financial system for their own gain and to plunge humanity into being the financier's debt slaves. Below is the part of the transcript that is most pertinent to this article. Rakowski. Allow me not to reply just now, so as not to interrupt the logical sequence. I only want to decipher the basic axiom. Money is power. Money is today the center of global gravity. I hope you agree with me. Kussman. Continue, Rakovsky, I beg of you. Rakovsky. The understanding of how the financial international has gradually, right up to our epoch, become the master of money, this magical talisman, 
which has become for the people that which God and the nation had been formerly, is something which exceeds in scientific interest even the art of revolutionary strategy, since this is also an art and also a revolution. I shall explain it to you. Historiographers and the masses, blinded by the shouts and the pop of the French Revolution, the people, intoxicated by the fact that it had succeeded in taking all power from the king and the privileged classes, did not notice how a small group of mysterious, careful, and insignificant people had taken possession of the real royal power, the magical power, almost divine, which it obtained almost without knowing it. The masses did not notice that the power had been seized by others, and that soon they had subjected them to a slavery more cruel than the king, since the latter, given his religious and moral prejudices, was incapable of taking advantage of such a power. So it came about that the supreme royal power was taken over by persons whose moral, intellectual, and cosmopolitan qualities did allow them to use it. It is clear that these were people who had never been Christians, but cosmopolitans. What is that for a mythical power which they had obtained? They had acquired for themselves the real privilege of coining money. Do not smile. Otherwise, I shall have to believe that you do not know what monies are. I ask you to put yourself in my place. My position in relation to you is that of the assistant of a doctor who would have to explain bacteriology to a resurrected medical man of the epoch before Pasteur. But I can explain your lack of knowledge to myself and forget it. Our language makes use of words which provoke incorrect thoughts about things and actions, thanks to the power of the inertia of thoughts, and which do not correspond to real and exact conceptions. I say money. It is clear that in your imagination there immediately appeared pictures of real money of metal and paper, but that is not so. Money is now not that. Real circulating coin is a true anachronism. If it still exists and circulates, then it is only thanks to atavism only because it is convenient to maintain the illusion, a purely imaginary fiction for the present day. This is a brilliant paradox, risky and even poetical. If you like, this is perhaps brilliant, but it is not a paradox. I know, and that is why you smiled, that states still coin money on pieces of metal or paper with royal busts or national crests. Well, so what? A great part of the money circulating, money for big affairs, as representative of all national wealth, money, yes money, it was being issued by those few people about whom I had hinted. Titles, figures, checks, promissory notes, endorsements, discounts, quotations, and figures without end flooded states like a waterfall. What are in comparison with these, the metallic and paper monies? something devoid of influence, some kind of minimum in the face of the growing flood of the all-flooding financial money. They, being the most subtle psychologists, were able to gain even more without trouble, thanks to a lack of understanding. In addition to the immensely varied different forms of financial monies, they created credit money with a view to making its volume close to infinite and to give it the speed of sound. It is an abstraction, a being of thought, a figure, number, credit, fake. Do you understand already? Fraud, false monies given a legal standing, using other terminology so that you should understand me. Banks, the stock exchanges, and the whole world financial system is a gigantic machine for the purpose of bringing about unnatural scandals, according to Aristotle's expression, to force money to produce money. That is something that if it is a crime in economics, then in relations to finances, it is a crime against the criminal code, since it is usury. I do not know by what arguments all this is justified, by the proposition they receive legal interest. Even accepting that, and even that admission is more than is necessary, we see that usury still exists, since even if the interest received is legal, then it invents and falsifies the non-existent capital. Banks have always, by way of deposits or monies in productive movement, a certain quantity of money which is five or perhaps even a hundred times greater than there are physically coined monies of metal or paper. I shall say nothing of those cases when the credit monies, i.e. false fabricated ones, are greater than the quantity of monies paid out as capital. Bearing in mind that lawful interest is fixed not on real capital, but on non-existing capital, 
The interest is illegal by so many times as the fictional capital is greater than the real one. Bear in mind that this system, which I am describing in detail, is one of the most innocent among those used for the fabrication of false money. Imagine to yourself, if you can, a small number of people having unlimited power through the possession of real wealth, and you will see that they are the absolute dictators of the stock exchange, and as a result of this, also the dictators of production and distribution, and also of work and consumption. If you have enough imagination, then multiply this by the global factor, and you will see its anarchical, moral, and social influence, i.e. a revolutionary one. Do you now understand? No, not yet. Obviously, it is very difficult to understand miracles. Miracles? Yes, miracle. Is it not a miracle that a wooden bench has been transformed into a temple? And yet such a miracle has been seen by people a thousand times, and they did not bat an eyelid during a whole century. Since this was an extraordinary miracle that the benches on which sat the greasy usurers to trade in their monies have now been converted into temples, which stand magnificently at every corner of the contemporary big towns with their heathen colonnades, and crowds go there with a fate which they are already not given by heavenly gods in order to bring assiduously their deposits of all their possessions to the god of money, who they imagine lives in the steel states of the bankers who is preordained thanks to his divine mission to increase the wealth to a metaphysical infinity. Drop the mic, Christian G. Rakowski. The conversation went on to discuss many more topics as Rakowski opened up to his interrogator. You will not be surprised to learn that Rakowski's wisdom and insights were fed back to Stalin, which ultimately saved his life. Let's revisit a passage from the above conversation. Cuspin, what is that for a mythical power which they had obtained? Rakowski, they had acquired for themselves the real privilege of coining money. Do not smile, otherwise I shall have to believe that you do not know what monies are. Rakowski is trying to hammer home the point that it's the monopoly in money creation and the related coercion and deception that is not just criminal and unethical, but also where the rot begins to creep into and shape society. The current financial system works against us to perpetually inflate the amount of money in the system, constantly debasing the purchasing power of our hard-earned money. Let's take an everyday example that many people can connect with, taking out a mortgage for a home. The first thing to understand here is that the current cost of buying a house is exorbitant, which is a direct consequence of the trap set by those that Rakowski described. To earn the right to take out a mortgage, you must first make a deposit. This deposit is usually a large sum of money, representing many years of the time and energy you expended to acquire it. In many cases, this could be somebody's life savings. Once that money is deposited to the bank issuing the loan, the bank can fractionally reserve that amount. Wait, what? The bank only has to keep a fraction of every dollar it gets, generally anywhere between 0% and 10%, depending on where you live in the current policy of that central bank. In the USA, it's currently zero. Yes, zero. From the Federal Reserve's website. Reserve requirements as announced on March 15, 2020, the board reduced reserve requirement ratios to 0% effective March 26, 2020. This action eliminated reserve requirements for all depository institutions. The next part of this process is still very difficult to come to terms with, but it's pointed out by Rune Ostergaard in his book Fraud Coin. Banks do not use depositors' money to issue loans, as per the report from the Bank of England, Money Creation in the Modern Economy by Michael McLea, Amar Radia, and Ryland Thomas of the Bank's Monetary Analysis Directorate. They note, One common misconception is that banks act simply as intermediaries, lending out the deposits that savers place with them. Further, Saving does not by itself increase the deposits or funds available for banks to lend. Indeed, viewing banks simply as intermediaries ignores the fact that, in reality, in the modern economy, commercial banks are the creators of deposit money. 
This article explains how, rather than banks lending out deposits that are placed with them, the act of lending creates deposits, the reverse of the sequence typically described in textbooks. Yes, read that again. The act of lending creates deposits. This results in what is termed the multiplier effect, which means that the initial deposit can result in much larger amounts of money in circulation within the banking system. As more loans are taken out by individuals, residential properties rise in price as a result of the increased money supply. As the property increases in value, more individuals can borrow against their property as collateral to buy bigger or more desirable property. Now apply this on a grand scale and realize that this is happening every minute of every day, not just with property, but for the many other reasons that individuals might apply for bank loans. This increase in the money supply has an insidious effect of raising the prices of the goods and services that we need or desire, as more money in the system spurs consumerism, sending a false demand signal to the market. Mainstream economic teaching still pushes the basic belief that inflation occurs when the aggregate quantity of goods demanded at any particular price level rises more quickly than the aggregate quantity of goods supplied at that price level. However, as explained above, an increase in the base money supply offers a differing definition of the economic term inflation and is much more understandable as to what causes the prices of goods and services to rise. Now, with our newfound knowledge of how the banks deposit the loan into your bank account, let's get back to the example of the mortgage and usury. Your deposit has been made, and the bank loans you the rest of the money by creating a deposit in your bank account for the transaction of the house purchase. This loan is what they will charge you interest on. This is usury in its purest form. Let's revisit what Rakowski revealed in the above passage. Bearing in mind that lawful interest is fixed not on real capital, but on non-existing capital, the interest is illegal by so many times as the fictional capital is greater than the real one. So even if a person has willingly agreed to the interest rate offered by the bank, the very fact that it is an interest rate levied on money the issuer didn't have is usurious and criminal. Now, at this point, you might be getting pretty angry at how we have been tricked into participating in a scheme designed to enrich those who issue loans from thin air and then charge us interest on it. One might think that people should stand up and fight against this fraudulent behavior. Well, one such person did, and his case has been widely studied. Known as the Credit River Case, the basic facts of this December 1968 case are fairly straightforward. Defendant Jerome Daly owned property in Scott County, Minnesota, on which he had a mortgage with the plaintiff First National Bank of Montgomery. Daly fell behind on his mortgage payments, leading the bank to foreclose on the property. The bank sought to evict Daly and take possession of the property. Daly, a trained lawyer, represented himself and based his defense on the argument that the bank had not actually loaned him any money, but had simply created credit on its books. Daly argued that the bank had not given him anything of value and accordingly was not entitled to the property that secured the loan. The jury and the justice of the peace, Martin V. Mahoney, agreed with his argument. The jury returned a verdict for the defendant and the justice of the peace found the mortgage null and void, declaring that the bank was not entitled to possession of the property. The decision meant that Daly did not have to pay the mortgage debt nor relinquish the property to the bank. The bank timely appealed, and the decision was nullified on the grounds that, as a justice of the peace, Martin V. Mahoney lacked the authority to enter such a ruling. The district court agreed, meaning that Daly had to pay the mortgage debt or relinquish the property to the bank. It is unclear whether Daly ever appealed this matter to the Supreme Court of Minnesota. Alas, there is more to the story. During the bank's appeal, Daly wrote in the local news article, quote, this decision, which is legally sound, has the effect of declaring all private mortgages on real and personal property and all U.S. and state bonds held by the Federal Reserve, national and state banks to be null and void. This amounts to the emancipation of this nation from personal, national, and state debt purportedly owed to this banking system. 
every American owes it to himself to study this decision very carefully, for upon it hangs the question of freedom or slavery. Ultimately, Daly was disbarred and banned from practicing law ever again. And adding to the mystery, Justice of the Peace Mahoney was found dead on August 22, 1969. The circumstances surrounding his death remain unresolved, and no amount of internet sleuthing can find much information about it. Allegedly, Mr. Mahoney died on a fishing trip whilst, quote, intoxicated. He was aged 55. Make of those facts what you will. It's not in this author's interest to speculate any further than what facts have been made available. Perhaps we can conclude that if one were to take a bank to court attempting to justify the non-repayment of a fractionally reserved interest-bearing loan, that person would lose. So, what can you do to protect yourself against usury in the financial system and a legal system that has been designed and manipulated not to uphold the truth? Simple. You opt out. Walk away from the table. Why would you sit there being perpetually beaten by rulers who change the rules to benefit themselves? Under this regime, which is the same in almost all countries worldwide, we stand no chance of true prosperity and ethical distribution of wealth. Entrepreneurs, savers, and consumers are left without any apparent signal, no real idea of value, and no guiding star. We have yet to learn what a truly civilized world could look like because the monetary system is civilization's foundation and the legal system is a layer of civilization built on top of the monetary system. To ensure prosperity, we must design a completely different form of money that stores value rather than loses value over time. A monetary system beyond the control of any centralized power. A means of exchange that runs on an open, easily verified economic system. We need a money that is global and available to anyone of any age from any race or religion without permission a store of value that becomes increasingly scarce and desirable over time, an instrument that is difficult to confiscate or steal. Embedded in this new system is a money that could be sent digitally in a matter of seconds to cater for the needs of people living in a modern, interconnected, and highly interdependent civilization. Thankfully, this money has been available to us since January 3, 2009. It works and it has protected millions of people and their families around the world. The money is Bitcoin. Your educational journey starts here. Daniel Prince, host of the Once Bitten Bitcoin podcast and author of Choose Life. This show is brought to you by the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, the Cypherpunk Calculator, Bitcoin on Ice. Getting a Bitcoin hardware wallet is the secret to actually securely owning Bitcoin over the long term. That's it. Get a cold card. That's all you have to do. You go to your favorite place to buy Bitcoin. You buy it. You withdraw it. Your cold card. And then you're done. There it is. Ready for you when you need it. And this thing is packed with function and security features. It has verifiable source code, a dual secure element, and it is truly air-gapped. It is the only signing device or hardware wallet with the option to avoid ever being connected to a computer for its full life cycle, from seed generation to transaction signing. And they even have an app. I haven't explored this yet, but I am so excited to actually dive into it when I have the time to, to take on this project. But they have CK Bunker, which actually allows you to use to set custom policies, plug in your cold card, and actually use it as a remote signer. So you can have a Bitcoin HSM, a hardware security module, that actually signs events that you, that you contact over a Tor service. If you don't know what that means, just understand that it's really, really cool. And that if you're running like a service or a lightning node that you actually want to run off of a hardware wallet, this is how you would do it. But of course, you don't need any of that awesome stuff because it just works. That awesome stuff is just extra for the people who love that awesome stuff. Otherwise, it's just normal, awesome hardware wallet. And you can check it out at bitcoinaudible.com slash coldcard. Plus, obviously, CoinKai has tons of other like amazing Bitcoin security devices. They've got the block clock, 
mini and micro. They've got the open dime, the physical Bitcoin that you can literally just hand to somebody like cash. They've got the seed plate. They've got the tap signer. Another, I love the tap signer in conjunction with Nunchuck and my mobile wallets. Uh, Sats card, the Sats chip. I just just go explore. There's tons to dig into. And if you haven't, it's time to get your hands on a cold card Mark IV. Check them out at bitcoinaudible.com slash cold card. Oh, and there's a discount code in the show notes. Don't forget about it. Bang, 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 down at the bottom. All right. So this was a really, really good piece. Um, and I think it really hits home the concept, which I, I've covered a lot on this show, but it cannot be repeated often enough because it's still the, the concept of just how horrific it is what is happening like there is no more complete scam than our monetary and financial system and it's one of those things that's so like i go back and forth that like whether or not lynn alden's book has a really great um section on this and i think seyfedin's uh the fiat standard has a great section on this as well is that this is kind of the path of least resistance for a centralized monetary abstraction network. I mean, that's a convoluted way of saying that you have to have representative notes of money rather than actual money. It's just the impersonation of monetary uh, restrictions or, or a monetary good. But it isn't actually money. Fiat is not money. Fiat is credit. And because of that, a lot of how our system works is kind of inevitable because the, the mechanism, the technology, the, the tools by which we operate it simply allow it to happen and thus it's going to happen. You know, like if, if there's, it doesn't matter how great you want everybody on the internet to be and all the, you know, fancy stuff. If you've just got like a back door into everybody's stuff, it's going to get exploited. It doesn't mean you can't like, get around a technological limitation. And so a lot of that is inevitable. That the fiat system as it is designed today in some way, shape, or form, someone was going to take advantage of it. But the thing is, is I, I, there's also a piece of me that like they know they're taking advantage of it. Like there's, there is a subset of people who are, the people who are best at taking advantage of it understand how it works and i think they understand how insidious it is as well because of the shocking amounts of capital they get to control but what has happened is the financial system has re-enslaved the world and i want to talk about something that uh daniel prince brings up in this piece is the idea of the money multiplier Actually, I want to go back to a different piece first. I want you to hold that in your mind. We're going to come back to the money multiplier and what I think it means. First, let's actually attack the idea of usury itself. So the Arab banking system, I can't remember, there's like some explicit name, and I think it's Nick Batia's book, Layered Money, that actually has a section on this, and it's, it's absolutely fantastic. But one of the fascinating things is that they did not go through the 2008 global housing and financial crisis. They didn't have one. And the reason is, is because usury is against the law. Now, they do engage in, like, some forms of lending, just like any financial system does. But because it is so, you're not allowed to do this, it essentially is limited to an extremely small subset. And they quoted Nick Batia, I think it was. I could be wrong in exactly where I read this. But um, uh, it was actually quoted in a section of, I think it was like Federal Reserve Analysis or something, talking about how, like, it's actually interesting that they did not go through any crisis and they didn't have a crash or recession or anything uh, because of their policies around lending and interest rates and all of this stuff. But it's... But the thing is, is that there's this big downside is that they didn't get all this growth. It's like, well, what does that even mean? Like, your growth resulted in a massive collapse, crash, and redistribution of wealth 
upward uh, up the ladder to the wealthy class, which means you didn't actually get any growth. Like that's not that's not growth if it all blows up. It's fake. One of the things that I and I when we were debating with the the Fed guy and uh, the um, I can't remember what bank he was with the the other banker me and Mark Yesko with uh, Charlotte Bitcoin, um, we did this few months ago in October. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But one of the things that they always talk about is that, is that you know, if you push more debt, you'll get more growth. And that's really positive. That's, you know, that's a good thing. It's like, well, you don't actually. You don't get more growth. What you get is you get a boom followed by a bust. That's not more growth. All it means when you restrict to lending only that which you have is that you simply restrict growth to reality. You restrict it to exactly what growth is actually possible. You know, if you lend, I cannot, I don't know how many times I have to use this analogy, but it's, there's no logical way around this. You can't just make this bigger, more convoluted, and add a bunch of abstractions and derivatives to it and change the fucking reality of the situation. That if you have 10 houses worth of wood, you can only build 10 houses. It doesn't matter if you just magic wand 20 houses worth of debt into existence and start 20 houses. What you get is 50% of 20 houses and a housing collapse because nothing can be finished. So comparing it to a society that does fractional reserve and loans out to 10 builders, I mean, excuse me, loans to 20 builders to build houses, to start building houses, and they only have 10 houses worth of wood. And then you have another society that has full reserve banking and restricts the amount of loans specifically to the amount of wood that exists, the amount of resources that actually exist. Well, one of them starts 20 houses and the other one starts 10. And what happens? Well, the central bank, the central banker comes out and says, look, Look at all this growth that we have because of our fractional reserve system. Unfortunately for the full reserve banking fools, the people who are stuck in the past, they don't get all this fancy, nice, beautiful growth that we get for 10, 15 years while the scam still works. But at the end of the first one, that first society, they, they don't have 20 houses. They don't even have 10 houses. What they have are 20 failed projects that have to be gutted, repurposed, and redistributed. And you have a whole bunch of extra people working in construction that now don't have jobs. While the full reserve system actually has 10 houses, a balanced construction industry, and now they all get to sit out on their porches and play in their backyards and enjoy the capital that they actually built and slow down for a f***ing second and actually have a life. That's the real difference between fractional reserve and fully reserved banking. Now, going back to the idea of usury in general, the idea of using money to make money. This, I still, I cannot get around the simple logic of that you should be able, you, you can rent stuff, like you can loan stuff out. If you can loan stuff, you can loan money, period. The problem in my mind isn't the act of loaning money and charging interest. Like, these same people don't have some sort of a religious quabble with renting out a car or a house. And what happens when you rent out money? You're just being general. You're just generalizing what capital or resources you're lending out by letting that person choose what it is they want, whether it is a car or a house. You're just not buying that capital ahead of time because money is pure is more pure capital. So if you could then if the bank is completely able to rent a car and then loan out the car for $100 a month, well then what's the problem with loaning the money for the car at $100 a month? It isn't imbalanced as long as it's real money that they actually loan out. That is the problem in my mind. Now, the case being made for why, why it's actually beneficial or there is a net positive to outlawing the entire concept at all or entirely is that when you can create money out of thin air or when you're using only money substitutes, when you start lending it out, you are necessarily at some point going to have it no longer restricted to the amount of actual resources. The reason it's a problem is because you're going to loan out 200% of the, you know, you, you loan out again, 
20 houses worth of money when there are only 10 houses worth of resources. Think about it. Money is just a substitute for the resources, is just an accounting system. So if your accounting system for the number of chairs that you're going to do for an event doesn't line up with the number of chairs you actually have, then your accounting system is just shit. It just doesn't work. You're going to plan for an event that sits a thousand people and you're going to have like 540 chairs and you're going to have a problem. The, the money isn't the thing. The money is simply the ability to secure its representation of the actual resources. That's why it is critical that money is actually scarce because its value must fluctuate in order to address, in order to account for the fact that the resources are constantly changing and to continue to allocate securely based on the value that has been previously, because the whole process of the economy is the creation of more resources. But there's no centralized authority that can possibly tally it all up. It's a, it's a completely illogical and axiomatically impossible task, which is why the value, the value of the money is what allocates the resources. And the money itself is an accounting system that should be static. It should be set in stone as to how many units there are. This is why, on a long enough time frame, every money that has replaced the previous money in existence has always been because it is more scarce, more divisible, and more perfectly able to divide up and distribute securely. In other words, the best monetary goods are literally all of the monetary characteristics the six or seven, arguably, you know, hat tip to Eric Yates, the seventh property. Um, uh, the seven properties of money are all just properties that allow an actual tradable market good, something that can be settled between two different people instantly and without trust. All of those characteristics are just which ones allow it to be the most perfect ledger. Is it divisible? Can it be broken, broken down into tiny incremental pieces and then put back together, which would be both its divisibility as well as its fungibility, both across different sizes of the unit itself or of the, the good itself, but then also across separate of the same size of unit. You know, two chickens aren't the same, and then half a chicken isn't worth the same as or one whole live chicken isn't worth the same as two halves of a chicken. Same with a car. Like, a, a working full car is not worth the same as two halves of cars. Like, a, a half of a car is worth nothing. It's just a hunk of metal. You get $200 worth of recycling out of it. But half of a gold bar is worth exactly half of a gold bar. Half of a Bitcoin is worth exactly half of a Bitcoin. It's fungible across scales and across separate of the same scale of the unit. One Bitcoin is equal to one Bitcoin. And then portable, durable, accepted, limited, etc., etc. Like all of these things are just attributes. And these things are attributes that have been applied to or been characteristics that we have found in physical goods. And thus those goods end up being uh, great monetary goods. But it's specifically because those goods, when it has all of those characteristics which are an extremely rare set of characteristics. You can find one or two, but finding them all together is insanely difficult. But all of these characteristics just are simply characteristics that allow it to act as a good ledger, a good tool to divide up real resources in exchange for it and to constantly update the state of ownership. And it must be limited in, in supply specifically because it needs to have an input of resources in order to get an output of resources, which really in the concept of money just translates to value because resources is kind of a resources and value are subjectively defined. So it's with each incremental trade that it even the, the concept even really emerges as a collective thing. So going back to the idea of Issuing more debt out of thin air causes there to be more growth, and that's a wonderful thing, is the same thing as saying issuing more tickets to a concert hall than there are seats gets more concert goers. No, it doesn't. It just completely screws up the event. And even worse is it because it's not visible. It's not 
people don't know how many chairs there actually are. At least in a concert hall, we can actually go check and verify. You can't audit value. You can't, like, the money is the thing that does it. So if you take the very mechanism by which you measure whether or not something is screwed up and you screw it up, all it does is confuse the whole situation and you get complete imbalances. In the context of the concert hall, what you have is you have twice as many concessions set up thinking that they're all going to sell food and beer. And then you have twice as many rental companies that are selling to people who are traveling into the area to go to the event. And they hire, uh, they hire new staff. They, they wash and they bring in new washing machines and dryers in order to deal with all of the linens and everything of all the people. The Airbnbs get booked up. The, the restaurants in the area book out more reservations and they hire more waiters and waitresses and you know people to bust the tables, all of this stuff. There's this explosion of activity around this event that can't even take place. And then when a thousand people show up to sit in 540 seats, you have a collapse. A whole bunch of people cancel, a bunch of people leave, everybody's pissed off. Waiters and waitresses end up getting fired because the concert hall isn't even going to bring in all of the people. The, the extra washing machines have to be sold at fire sale prices and now they're sitting on debt because they took out a loan in order to get the, washing, the wash, extra washing machines. And now they had to sell them at like 50 or 60% of the price because they're used. There's tons of wasted resources and food and drinks and everything and the concessions because this all this shit's going to, going to expire. The money doesn't expire. So when you cheat the money, what you do is you encourage more production and waste of resources that do expire. So when they don't get consumed at the concert as it was planned because only 540 people can fit in the freaking building... It all goes bad and it gets thrown away and then everybody gets mad at capitalism and free markets are stupid. It's like, no, you cheated. You just cheated the whole system. Yes, cheating and scamming people is stupid. And it also doesn't work out very well for anybody except the scammer, the ones selling the tickets because they get to keep the money. Isn't that interesting? So how does this relate to, we're talking about the financial system and the re-enslavement of the world, which I, I realize that to a lot of people that sounds, you know, probably an exaggeration and, you know, crazy and insane, but it's not, it's, it's not, we all have to work for them by necessity. It's, it's how, it's literally how the structure of the money works. You are working for someone who doesn't have any resources and you're giving them your resources. That is literally the system. I don't know how to call that anything other than slavery. That doesn't seem crazy to me. It seems crazy to say to call it anything other than that. In fact, it seems batshit insane. It's, it sounds like Stockholm Syndrome to call it anything other than slavery because that's exactly what it is. Everyone works to give their to make resources and give it to someone who does not have any resources and who did not lend them any resources. If someone created money out of thin air, money that didn't exist, they had no resources, no savings backing it, and they lend it to someone else. They bought themselves something. Think about it. Just think about it. If I don't have a car, and I loan, I create money into existence, and I loan it to you to buy a car, and now you pay me back the loan with interest, you bought me a car. You bought me a car. I own your car. I did not have a car. Now I own a car. I own a car plus interest. If you don't pay me, I get the car. Plus, I get the rental fee for the interest. The interest is a rental fee for the car. But where did the car come from? What, what, what actually happened there? How did, you re how did you get a car? Well, what I did is I cheated the collective debt instrument, the collective ledger for who gets to allocate what resources. So what I actually did is I rented you somebody else's car without their knowledge, and they took the money thinking that it represented real resources that somebody actually had skin in the game and created real value that was produced in the economy. Therefore, they traded their actual value for it, thinking that this was a two-way street. It's not. It's a one-way street. It just goes from you to me. And me, as a banker, simply have the privilege, the legal privilege, of counterfeiting rental agreements from somebody else's pool of resources. That is it. That is what happened. That is how our 
banking system works. So now we go back to the money multiplier, which the simple version of it is one divided by the reserve ratio. It's not really how it works out, but the, the easy version. So if the reserve ratio is 10%, then the money multiplier is 10. Here's the kicker on the simple version of what that means. That means that 90% of the capital in society is loaned out from financial institutions. And 90% of the capital of that society is now rented from banks and financial institutions that never owned anything, any of it. 90% is totally fake and you're paying rent to someone who doesn't even own the stuff. This is why society is so upside down because all of the people who actually create the stuff owe it to people who then take it and rent it back to them. All simply through the mechanism of cheating the tool by which we keep a record of who made it. That is what money does. And when you cheat the money, the cheater simply gets to own all the resources. We rent from the banks the stuff that we made. And again, I want to stress that's the simple version of 10% reserve ratio. Remember what Daniel pointed out. You know what the new reserve ratio is? 0%. 0%. On a long enough timeline, everything is just cre alone created out of thin air from the banks, and nobody owns anything, and everybody just rents their entire lives. How many people you know own a house? Not, not a mortgage. A mortgage is renting a house. How many people own a house? Now, going back to the idea of usury and loaning resources as in just in a general sense, loaning monetary resources, so to speak, um, which it's hard to call it a resource because it's not actually a consumption good. It's not used in anything. It is explicitly a ledger. But just for the sake of, you know, argument or, or understanding visually what's happening, to loan money in place of resources and then charge a monthly interest, a, a rent, on the use of that capital. I'm not philosophically against it because I can't separate it from just the simple concept of renting a car or renting a home or an apartment or somebody's lawnmower, anything, literally anything, because that's what loaning money does. It just allows you to as long as there's real resources behind it, it's actual money that someone saved, someone earned, and then was directly loaned out to someone else, then it's genuine and it's actually the resources actually exist. I do not have a philosophical problem with this. The reason I entertain the idea of it being totally outlawed is because of money's technological problem, is because there's no way to restrict it to the actual resources that exist when all the money we use is essentially a form of money substitute, which now it's just a pure substitution. Fiat is nothing. It doesn't have any of the characteristics that a money needs. It's pure impersonation of a monetary good. One of the things actually in the debate uh, with the, the Fed and the bank guy, um, which part of it wasn't even a debate. They, one of the guys in, in particular seemed to be pro-Bitcoin in a number of different ways. But one of the things that was brought up when this issue actually came on the table was that the free market, like the, the, just any market, is going to do fractional reserve, period. It's just going to show up. So there's no real way to stop it. And that's kind of why I agree. And in the context of like whether it's, if it's actually out in the open, you know, if Mt. Gox actually, you know, and FTX actually was completely open about the fact that they owed everybody, you know, a million Bitcoin and they only had 400,000 Bitcoin and all of those people voluntarily agree to that because they're retarded, then okay, part of me is just like, let stupid people get destroyed. I, I don't know how to fix that other than let evolution play its course. But I can't help but be a little bit 
enamored with the idea of not having to go down that road at all. So I'm at least, uh, you know, generally I, I don't like the idea of, you know, restricting what people voluntarily agree to just as a concept. You know, you're free to do whatever stupid thing you want. That's one of the important things about freedom is that stupid people are allowed to make mistakes and that they have to pay for them. They can't force those mistakes, the cost of those mistakes onto other people. That is why governments and socialized systems destroy societies because mistakes and lies and fraud have real consequences. And when you socialize those losses, what you do is you punish the good behavior to the reward of the idiot and the scammer. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about, it's about the money. It's about what you use. You can't loan fake Bitcoin onto the Bitcoin chain. You can't loan fake Bitcoin onto, you know, a lightning channel. And going all the way back to Lynn Alden, broken money, and the fiat standard with Saifedean, and these concepts is just that this is a technological problem, and the only real solution is a technological solution. And Bitcoin is the foundation of that. It's, it's the beginnings of the ecosystem that will solve this problem. And I think a perfect example is FTX and Mt. Gox and Three Arrows Capital and all of these institutions that tried to play the fiat game in the Bitcoin world and had their asses handed to them. That will keep happening until we learn. But I gotta say... uh. Shout out to Daniel Prince for this piece, really great article. And uh, also, I cannot believe, maybe I have heard this at some point, but I cannot believe I did not know, or at least did not remember about the story about Daly, about representing himself and actually won the court, won in court, that the bank had not loaned him anything because they had no value. So it was, all, it was all just fake, and therefore he doesn't owe them back anything. Because this is the reality of the situation, and it just proves the illegitimacy of the entire structure of the system, and why it is that the banks and the financial system own everything. It is not because they add value to society. It is not because they are the ones that are making sure that the, the country is productive and balanced and prosperous. It is specifically because they are cheating. They are just stealing it all from all of the people that are actually building and making things. We don't and shouldn't owe them anything. But the sad reality is that this also includes 90, 95% of the value of all of the things that we believe are backstopping our way of life. Our retirement accounts, our pension funds, equities valuations, mortgages and the value of our houses, all of these things. These things are only propped up because of that fake money, which means that no matter what happens, we're still going to pay for their, their, for their cheating. Which is why the only, like Daniel said, the only solution is exit. You just have to get out. You just have to leave it. Bitcoin is that exit. You know what, I'll take this opportunity to shill my uh, Matrix meme. The exit fiat enter Bitcoin uh, Matrix m movie meme. You know the meme, uh, the picture says, what are you saying? That, you know, I can sell my Bitcoin for millions one day? No, Neo, I'm telling you that when you're ready, you won't have to. Well, I turned it into its final form, and it is a full video podcast or full video meme, uh, and it is on YouTube. So I'm going to show that right now. And also, don't forget to subscribe to Bitcoin Audible and also AI Unchained, my other podcast. Uh, we've got some really cool stuff coming for AI Unchained actually in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. Sorry, I didn't have a holiday episode. It, it kind of fell apart in the middle, and then holidays and everything and traveling happened, and I just never got back to it. But we are back in action. We will have one this Thursday. So stay tuned, uh, subscribe, and check out the YouTube and Rumble channels where all the video interviews and a lot of other and tutorials and things are slowly but surely making their way up there. I thank you also to our amazing sponsors, Swan Bitcoin and CoinKite, for supporting this show. Swan Bitcoin is the place to buy and set up all of your Bitcoin finances with real Bitcoin that you can have sent to your actual wallet because automatic withdrawals are just the best and they still have, it's still free. They still are paying the on-chain fee, which is amazing. 
so you get it sent straight to your cold card. Or tap signer or multi-sig or whatever your device of choice is. And don't forget the discount codes and all the details right in the show notes. All right. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. Do not forget to subscribe to both Bitcoin Audible and AI Unchained. We have the Stone Ridge Investment Letter of 2023 coming uh, this Wednesday. So the next episode in line. So don't miss it. I will catch you then. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. They muddy the water to make it seem deep. Friedrich Nietzsche.